Greetings, Rays community. Brent here coming in live from the last episode that I will record in Oceanside, California. As my family continues our RV road schooling adventure, we are heading to Scottsdale shortly. Uh, and I'm really glad that we're able to host today's guest, Chris Gulick Schaefer, who spent the last 10 years at MIT Sloan serving uh, in a variety of capacities, including Senior Associate Dean of External Relations and Global Programs before uh, this past summer of 2020, launching her own fundraising, coaching, and consulting business. Uh, and I'm really excited because we have not talked about that topic. And Chris is just a wonderful partner in the sector. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here with you today. Uh, snowy, snowy day in Boston. So you're lucky you're out in California, which I could say I was out in California with you. My son's out there. He says it's a beautiful sunny day where he is. So wish I was there. But you are getting your money's worth in New England weather today. That is for sure. Just so everybody knows this is being recorded on December 17th. And I think we had a pretty serious nor'easter uh, yesterday, uh, at least from what I hear. So <laughs> Uh, I am really excited to host Chris. I have looked at so many LinkedIn profiles of advancement professionals over the years, oftentimes trying to figure out what led a given individual down this career path into this field of advancement. Oftentimes we hear things like, I'd never heard of it, or I fell into it, or one thing led to another, but not when you look at Chris's profile. It's the first time I've ever seen on LinkedIn. Her first position was daughter of president, St. Lawrence University, 1980 to 1987. So you did not stumble into the world of higher education. I did not. It's true. My dad uh, was a college professor and then a dean of the faculty at Hamilton College and then a college president. Um, I chronicle my life on 13 college campuses that either he was at or I was at. Um, and uh, I always joke that when I was little, I had shiny shoes and passed around hors d'oeuvres at, you know, trustee parties and um, the like when I was little growing up. So, um, and uh, when I went off to college, my dad said um, to me, major in what you love because you'll have the best experience and learn the most. Uh, and then you'll figure out everything else from there. Um, so that's what I did. Um, what do you love the most? Uh, so when I was in college, I loved the most music. And so I was a performance major, a music major, and uh, studied voice and sang uh, my way through college, uh, actually. The problem with well, that if is- I that had, If I had <laughs> known that, I might have- uh, you know prepped you for a impromptu performance on the podcast. Here. Yeah, yeah, yet. not so much. I mostly only <laughs> sing in the car now. Um, I sang a lot until I had kids and then I only sang to my kids. Uh, now I just don't really sing much at all anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I actually got a job in fundraising right out of college um, at the University of Vermont and um, have been doing it ever since. So, yeah. So chronicling your life on uh, 13 college campuses, which one's your favorite? Oh gosh, that's so hard. So, you know, as a kid growing up, um, it's a very idyllic way to grow up. Um, uh, you are a college um, faculty member's kid. It means that your babysitters are college students. Um, when your dad's a professor of PhD students, it means, you know, the people around your dinner table are people who are working on their PhDs. Um, it means that you grow up going to football games and hockey games and going to the bonfires on Dartmouth's campus, uh, and going to see the ice sculptures on winter carnival weekend and, um, you know, all the concerts. And I mean, it just, you really couldn't have a cooler way to grow up as a kid. I mean, it sounds amazing. It, it really does. It, it really was amazing, honestly. Uh, so I would say as a kid growing up, probably um, being on Dartmouth's campus as a kid was just unbelievable. You know, I sold Coca-Colas in the football stands for a buck a tray. Um, and uh, the bonfires and the ice sculptures and skating on Occam Pond. And I mean, all of it, You're learning how to, you know, ski at the um, Dartmouth Skiway. I mean, it was amazing. Um, and then, uh, you know, 
as a professional, it's a, also a very hard question. I mean, I'm pretty clear and I wouldn't say it out loud, the college campuses where I didn't love my jobs as much. Um, the last job I had at Sloan was an extraordinary opportunity. I mean, that was an amazing, amazing job. I loved that job. Uh, really, well, we'll come back to that. I mean, let's, yeah. you know, so you're, you're basically born with your, you know, born into higher education. Your, yep. your life is higher education. You're exposed to it every step of the way from athletics to arts, cultural students, PhDs, you name it. Uh, and you, you, you went to college to pursue music but you came out of it thinking, you know what, I just got to get back into higher ed. I mean, you couldn't even be away from it uh, for a minute. And you, you made the leap to, to run the parents fund at, at UVM. Was that a hard decision or was it uh, to just feel like the right path? Well, I mean, you so, must have had the most incredible network of higher education professionals of any college student in the country, uh, you know, coming out at that time. And um, you, you, I'm sure it, it had to be a, uh, no shortage of opportunities. Well, so the stars sort of align in a variety of ways. I was a, a case scholarship recipient my senior year. Um, so I attended wow. the case district one and two combined conference my senior year in college. Uh, and I had a lot of people watching over me. So the de whole development office at St. Lawrence University was sort of watching over me. Uh, at that conference, making sure I sort of made good connections and that sort of thing. Um, I actually didn't know that I was going to go into development, but um, here's the thing about my parents. Uh, they paid for my undergraduate education, which was awesome. Uh, but the rule at my parents' house was, we're going to pay for your education, but the day you graduate, you're a guest in our home. You literally can't come home. No joke. Like they packed up my bedroom um, and they did this for my brothers as well. And we're going to mail it to you, like have a job. And uh, I called home uh, in January of my senior year. And I said, so, you know, I can't actually make a living as a musician. I'm a decent singer, but I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, income worthy. Um, so I think I'm going to go be on a college campus somewhere. I'm going to go do admissions or um, student life. Maybe I'll go be a resident director or something. And my dad said to me, you know, honey, development's really becoming a hot profession. Everybody always needs a fundraiser. You ought to go get an entry-level job in the annual fund somewhere. So thus the entry-level job in fundraising. And I would go to the Palatier Library at Allegheny. Were you College. always so well-behaved where you would just, whatever oh, I was so asked, I was just, so yeah. not well-behaved. If you <laughs> were to talk to my friends, you would know how un not well-behaved I was. I was really a terror um, actually. But uh, I used to go to the library and the Chronicle of Higher Ed was a you know, printed newspaper back then. And I looked at all the entry-level jobs and I applied at Bucknell and Denison and UVM and all these assistant director of the annual fund jobs. And I landed at UVM with a job on the 4th of July, 5th of July I started. So I had to beg my parents, could I move home from the day I graduated college until the 5th of July, because otherwise I would have no place to go and I didn't have a paycheck. And my dad said, yeah, I could come home for six weeks. So I just yeah. saw recently that, that Pew put out a, um, a research report. I guess they've tracked this over the years um, of what percentage of young adults live at home and the percentage of 18 to 29 year olds in the United States who live with a parent is now at 52%. It's the highest in history, wow. um, highest since, I think maybe maybe not of all time. Maybe it was the 1940s or something like that. Um, but but literally, we are uh, back to a peak. Um, so that is just a point of reference relative huh. to the uh, the bags being packed on your yeah. behalf. Yeah. 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 So anyway, so, that's how I, that's so, how I landed the first job. You know, relative to other people that land that first job in development. Yeah, knew what you were getting into. Like you had exposure and comfort with the terminology, the cultures, et cetera. Um, but at the same time, it's still your first real job. Any challenges or um, you know follies or successes uh, from that job that helped uh, shape kind of your career path thereafter? Well, I had an awesome boss by the name of Pete Beekman, um, who ironically was at UVM and then went to St. Lawrence. I mean, it's like such a small world. The thing about development is it's an incredibly small world. And you need to be very careful to 
tend all your relationships because you're inevitably going to run into people again. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess I would say that I just have been blessed uh, throughout my career, um, both by CASE, which has been an extraordinary um, organization for me in my life and all the relationships that it's, um, that I've kept uh, through that organization, but also just by having some really good bosses who have been good mentors to me and uh, who um, were both uh, kind when I made mistakes um, and helped me along. I mean, I am a type A personality and I am a perfectionist. Uh, and I can remember early on making lots of mistakes actually. Um, and uh, having Pete just be generous of spirit and a good teacher. Um, I mean, I, I can give you, I mean, the, you know, sort of one glaring thing that just stands out at me. I mean, this just, just shows you how old I am. But um, back then we were just starting a paid student caller program and we were hiring graduate students, um, not undergraduate students to work. And we were paying them um, $4 an hour. Um, and I was hiring these graduate students and they were all old, older than I was. And I was printing out these um, placemats uh, that had all of the important information that the students would need to, you know, graduate students would need to know the answer or any question that an alum might have. Uh, and um, I've not seen those placemats, but I pictured them like the when you see an NFL coach standing on the sideline with the micro print that has every possible play every, and every possible scenario exactly, and every possible you know, time left on the clock. Is that what and it's, it's like? got? Yeah. And it's got, you know, every gift society and what you, you know, you get if you were given it a thousand dollars or whatever and the names of everything. And oh my gosh. Uh, and, you know, I, I designed it and I thought it looked beautiful and, you know, off I send it to the printer and it comes back and it has like, you know, four typos on it. I thought for sure I was going to get fired. I walk into Pete's office. I had tears streaming down my face, you know, sure that this is like going to be the end of my, you know, end of my career right there, beginning and end, like in the first, you know, whatever, six months of my job. Um, so, you know, these things sort of stand out for you. You know, I also traveled to New York city. Uh, I was responsible for three reunion classes and I traveled to New York city alone. I was 21 years old. Um, I stayed at the Barbizon Hotel, which was a woman's hotel back then, um, in order to be safe. Uh, no cell phones. Uh, you know, you were constantly like looking for a payphone if you were going to be late for an appointment. And um, I'd never been to New York City before. I'd never been to a big city before. Um, mm. And uh, I flew down on People's Express, a very cheap $19 plane ticket. Uh, into Newark, New Jersey, and then took a bus into New York City. Uh, and I was meeting a guy from the class of 1976, and I could not find his office to save my soul. And I could not find a payphone to call him to tell him I was going to be late. I mean, I had like, you know, lots of these kinds of experiences in my first several years on the job. We've got it too easy now. Seems like that would build some major character. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I mean, it was a lot of, um, uh, I don't know. It was a, it was a very different kind of job back then. It was a very was different like kind of job. Going from, um, you know, and I don't know all of the, the campuses where you grew up, but it seems like it was somewhat oriented in the Northeast. Um, but then you made a leap to Texas, which yeah. you were culturally very different. I mean, what was that like going from, UVM to TCU, you don't always see those two names next to each other. Yeah, it was a huge, huge adjustment, actually. Um, I went to work for an amazing, another amazing woman named Angie Loudon. Uh, um, and I went to be the director of the annual fund. I was uh, 26 years old. Uh, I had all uh, people working for me who were older than I was, who were all Texans, who wondered you know, what is this woman doing here? And um, uh, shortly after I got there, I hired an extraordinary young man named Steve Winesett who helped me turn everything around um, because he believed in me and he helped me get everybody else sort of on board. But, um, and I made a lot of mistakes in that job. You know, unfortunately you only ever learn when you screw up. I mean, I, I hate that that happens to be the truth, but that seems to be at least has been my path, but that's where I learned that it, you really need to take the time to learn the culture of an organization. Um, 
before you start implementing change and that every place has its own unique culture and um, TCU certainly had its own unique culture um, and that what worked at UVM was not necessarily going to work at TCU uh, and that for me to just presume that um, things that I saw there that I didn't understand were good or um, things that I saw there that didn't make sense to me um, were wrong uh, was, you know, that was a rude, harsh uh, reality that I learned really the hard way. And I never made that mistake again as I moved to the next job and the next job and the next job. Uh, I, I really took my time to learn. Um, it's interesting, I had a trustee there who actually flew me in the first several months on the job uh, down to the Georgia Bulldog game and um, to show me what big football was like, because um, I'd come from you know the, the Northeast where there was no such thing in his mind as big football. And he said, even Ivy League schools don't really understand what real football is about. Um, and that was really quite an experience. Um, and, you know, I really grew to love TCU and to love my time at TCU. And I learned to really appreciate Texas, uh, a lot and the relationships that I developed in Texas and what makes Texas unique and special. And, um, I have tons of great friends, uh, still today from my years there. Cause I went from there to Rice university and, so I ended up being in Texas almost eight years in the end. Uh, and I'm tremendously grateful for that. I mean, it really altered my life and my view on the world getting out of the Northeast for eight years was a very Why? good thing for me. I mean, tell um, us more about that. What, what you know, obviously we've got a uh, massive shift in work going on right now where people are working from, uh, you know, where I am, where you are. I mean, it's, you, we'll see where it settles out, but certainly there is more um, freedom and flexibility, not for everyone, but for a lot of folks than ever before. Um, what stands out as being, you know, if you hadn't gone and spent eight years in, in a different part of the country, different culture, what wouldn't you know now, or what wouldn't you appreciate now the way that you do? I think that I, you know, I grew up, um, really in a very um, northeastern um, what would many would argue elitist bubble uh, and um, and for me going to Texas and then subsequently living in Wisconsin and working in Chicago and having exposure to the Midwest then um, you know there's a lot outside of New England that is spectacular. Um, and I grew to really appreciate um, the patriotism that exists. I mean, in, in Texas, there is a sense of um, duty and patriotism that doesn't exist in the same way. Uh, I don't think um, there is a, a sense of, um, uh, there's a, um, you know, I've, I lived uh, in a community, you know, you have to be careful when you say some of these things. So I don't want to offend anybody, but, you know, both in the Midwest and in Texas, I knew all my neighbors within minutes of living there. You know, people bring over a dish when you move in and um, they walk across the street in their sweatpants with a cup of coffee in the morning and, there's just a, um, a warmth um, and, a, and a, um, it's just easier. Um, there's, yeah. a, there's just a, a warmth. I don't know what other word to use. Now, I will say that I now live in Watertown in Massachusetts. There's a warmth in Watertown that I didn't experience in some other parts of Massachusetts um, that I love. I mean, I love Watertown, Massachusetts. I mean, there is something really wonderful about this community. I have a neighborhood like I haven't ever had in this town. Um, so it's not all places, um, but there for me, uh, having grown up really exclusively in New England, going to Texas was like moving to a foreign country. I mean, honestly, you know, I went yeah. to my first 4th of July there and um, having just gone to a 4th of July in Vermont that was, you know, scenic and picturesque and beautiful. I go to this 4th of July in Texas 
And the theme was um, that every single um, uh, military, so the Navy and the Army, you know, their song was played and everybody stood up and, you know, was honored. And it was so moving. I mean, it was really just so patriotic and so made you feel so like proud to be an American and part of this country. I mean, it's not just like not something I'd ever seen living in the Northeast ever. So it's just experiences like that um, that were incredible. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, look, as development professionals and, you know, myself in the space, you certainly are no stranger to travel. But there's something different about, you know, flying in, flying out, right? Flying into Dallas, having some meetings, flying out, flying into Austin, having some meetings and leaving versus really getting to dig in um, and, and experience some of the nuance and some of the, you know, unique culture. I mean, look, we've been on this trip with my family since July and we've had an opportunity to spend, you know, a month plus in a lot of places and that's enough time to really get a feel for it. And it, and you're right. It does feel like, you know, it's a big country and there are some just really, really distinct um, aspects of growing up wherever, you know, one grows up. And uh, it's definitely helped me have more empathy, um, you know, at a time of obviously great polarization to at least have a sense of where people are coming from uh, in, in some regards. So uh, you did make the move. Uh, uh, I mean, is there anywhere you haven't lived at this point in the country? Just speaking of uh, geographic coverage. I haven't lived all the way out West. Yeah. I have a son, a son who's living out West now, but I haven't lived all the way out West. So, I mean, I also think it helps you have, um, I hope, I think it helps you be better at the work when you've met lots of different kinds of people from all over the world, you know, um, cause it helps you just, you know, I don't know, connect with lots of different kinds of people. Sure. So, so, uh, was it hard to make the move from uh, Texas to the winters of Wisconsin and Chicago? Not a lot of people doing that these days. Yeah. You know, um, yes and no. I mean, the summers in Texas are not a lot of fun either. Right. So, every place sort of has its liability, right. I think. Right. So Texas summers and red ants and, you know, I mean, there are things about uh, the climate in Texas and, you know, sort of the, the lack of mountains. And so, um, you know, I mean, I was actually happy to come back to the Northeast because I like seasons um, yeah. and I like mountains and I, so, um, so yeah, no, actually I was, I was actually happy to be, knowing that I was going to be raising my children where they'd see snow and uh, all that. You were comfortable, or at least uh, your whole life had been sort of, it sounds like this campus to campus to campus, a few years, a few years, a few years. Um, but when you came back to the Northeast, I mean, that's when you really dug in. You joined Simmons College as VP of Advancement, or, or at least you joined Simmons College in 1998 yep. and yep. served as VP of, of Advancement for almost... 13 years, what was it about that experience where it was like, wait a second, you know, maybe I can really dig in. Um, I mean, a decade plus, you know, yeah. most folks don't have that opportunity, but you were able to, uh, to, to do that twice. Yeah. I think, you know, once you hit, um, I mean, I would have probably stayed at children's longer, but um, my now ex-husband, but husband at the time had this amazing opportunity to come back to Boston. And so we left there. I probably would not have left children's when I did um, because I had a really uh, amazing opportunity there as the um, vice president of the foundation. Um, I think once you reach the more senior level roles, um, it's, it's, I would argue irresponsible to jump around uh, that it really is hard to make a difference if you don't stay for a significant amount of time. Uh, so, and in the case of uh, Simmons, you know, I was brought there by the president uh, at the time, Dan Cheever, and he and I had a run together from 98 until he retired actually in 2006, I think I may have that right. Um, and, um, then I stayed on, uh, with a new president, um, who didn't actually last very long. Um, and then a subsequent, um, uh, the board chair who became the president, uh, 
And, um, you know, I think that once you're in a senior role, there's really an opportunity to make a significant difference. And the longer you stay, the more there's an opportunity to do that. I would argue the flip of that, though, which is um, I would say in hindsight that, you know, 10 years is probably about the right amount of time from my perspective. I think some leaders can stay way longer than that. Uh, I've seen people do it successfully and it's been good for the institution and good for the individual. So it's not really a judgment on my part for people who do stay longer. But um, I think my own hindsight around Simmons is 10 years was probably a bad enough time and I stayed a little bit too long. Um, and uh, my decision to step down when I did from Sloan was that I felt like, you know, I was heading up towards the 10 year mark and 10 years is about long enough. What was the context when you got to Simmons and then when you left? I mean, first of all, you, you got there right uh, in the midst of the dot-com boom. Not that yeah. I don't know how much exposure there was among the Simmons community there, but just broader macro context, it's dot-com. You go through 9-11, you go through financial crisis, uh, lots of ups and downs, at least yep. in the macro context, yep. while yep. you're trying to drive um, what was called the Dare to Imagine campaign. Yeah. Um, what was that like, especially given, uh, I think, all of the you know challenges, you know, for some development professionals. I mean, look, nobody's lived through 2020, but for many folks, this might be the first kind of macro crisis or recession, et cetera. And obviously, this one's different than the other ones I referenced. But when you think about when you got there in 1998, you know, dawn of the internet to yeah. 2010, you know, midst of the financial crisis, what was that like? Yeah. Um, so uh, the beginning was an awesome ride. Uh, so the Imagine campaign was uh, hugely successful. It was an institution that really hadn't had a um, aggressive fundraising effort at all. Um, and an institution that by and large is, was a women's college. I mean, it was a women's undergraduate college. It had a few men in its graduate programs, mm -hmm. but most of its constituents were female. Uh, and, um, we really were trying to take them from nowhere to somewhere, I would say. Uh, and so to professionalize the team, to actually hire a team, to go from a pretty small staff to a pretty decent sized staff, um, was really just a ton of fun, honestly. Um, you know, we set a goal of 50 million, we raised almost 70, uh, Dan was a phenomenal boss and colleague. Uh, we just had a great time. I mean, that's just the truth. Uh, and um, 2008 was a tremendous bummer. Um, you know, we uh, ended that campaign with success. Dan's, uh, we did a very small do it for Dan campaign to raise money in honor of him as he was retiring on the heels of the Imagine campaign. He then, you know, uh, exit stage right. And um, and then we, you know, head into a really tough time for the for the country and and likewise for the school. Um, we end up having to lay people off, um, and uh, and that's a brutal experience for me personally. I've never laid significant staff off in my career at that point, uh, and um, you know, letting go like you know, fifteen people was hard. Uh, having like built up and had the momentum of it being such an extraordinary uh, time. Um, so that was really, really tough. Uh, and, um, you know, the school did go on to sort of um, get over that bump, if you will, uh, and have another campaign. They launched another campaign while I was there. Uh, and then I left in the middle of it um, and they ended that next campaign successfully. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I would say that Simmons is, um, you know, one of those schools that's, uh, in what I would call sort of that, um, hard place, which is, um, you know, it's not, um, sort of a tier one, um, it's a really extraordinary place that is in my mind, um, filling a, a niche because it is not a traditional liberal arts college, but is really providing a practical education um, and, and doing a really good job of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, um, you know, less well-known um, and 
Uh, because so many of its donors are female, it's got a little bit of a harder road when it comes to fundraising. Um, so it's sort of in a tough spot, you know, um, but I think it's an amazing, amazing place. And it's got a new president right now who I haven't gotten a chance to know at all, but who I told is great. So, yeah. you know, I so wish local, the place a lot. Local niche, clear focus. Yep. To MIT Sloan global focus. Yeah. Like what a, I mean, other end of the spectrum. Totally. How did that come about? And it just had to be. I mean, you've got China, Malaysia, Portugal, relationships with Australia. I mean, it almost sounds more like an ambassadorship than an advancement <laughs> leadership role. Um, just tell me about that um, that leap, the fact that it seems like you just added a zero to everything that you did from a fundraising perspective and just the truly global nature of that role in a pre-Zoom link away from everyone context. Yeah. So, um, so I was recruited by Dave Schmidtlein, who uh, was the dean and still is the dean there. And um, it was the job of a lifetime, honest to God. You know, like if you could say what's the, you know, um, trajectory of your career and if you could say what's the last job you want to have before you sort of decide you're going to go do something different, which is be a coach consultant. Um like I couldn't have planned it any better, honestly. Um, it was the perfect job in a million ways. It was perfect because I've never worked with a faculty who is uh, more, was more interested in engaging in the fundraising uh, enterprise. When I asked, would you be willing to do X? They always said yes, unbelievable. Like nowhere have I worked where that was true. Um, and they're passionate about the work they're doing. So, you know, it, when they went and talked about it, you know, everybody in the room got excited about it. Um, the alumni are humble and smart and uh, engaged and um, interesting. And you just wanted to be around them. So every time you were on the road, you were excited because you just wanted to go hang out with them. Um, and, and it was a program that was philanthropically underperforming. So um, there was the opportunity to raise more How money. do you know that? How do you know it's underperforming? Um, because uh, there's no way that um, a place that is um, turning out people who are as wildly successful uh, as Sloan graduates are, and it was bringing in the revenue that Sloan was that you could say that 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 those those um, added up. I mean, it just it just didn't. Um, there's just no way that. And even still, I would argue that while we were we had gone from you know a revenue number um, my, my uh, it's escaping me sort of where we were when I first got there, but you know, we were bringing in, you know, somewhere around 50 to 55 million annually, you know, I mean, that number could easily be closer to 70 or even higher than that on an annual basis. Um, so, you know, there's sort of nowhere to go but up. Um, and the global programs piece of my job was actually something completely separate from external relations. That was really more about partnerships with institutions around the world. And that was something that sort of got added on to my job after I got there and was also a lot of fun. And there was just a nice synergy between external relations and global programs. Um, and the chance to do- Favorite favorite trip. I mean, you had to have some amazing international experiences. Maybe it was domestic, but when you think about just like the trip or the experience that stands out among all others, anything come to mind? Oh my God. I mean, it's so hard to say. I mean, I, I literally, had the opportunity to travel everywhere. I mean, the only place I didn't go that I really had wanted to go and never got there, honestly, was India. I really wanted the chance to go to India and I never did. Um, but uh, I had some just extraordinary trips to Asia, all over Asia. Um, I've been all over Latin America uh, and, um, you know, uh, I think, you know, not dissimilarly to my sort of experience of um, going to Texas when I was 26, 
Uh, I had not traveled internationally really at all until I took this job at Sloan. I mean, I had been outside the United States of America twice in my life before I was 48 years old and took this job. And, um, you know, this chance to really uh, get exposed to the world and, um, and, and the impact that that has had on me personally uh, the way I read the news and the way I understand um, the world is just been profoundly uh, changed, not surprising. Uh, and the people in my life, uh, it's just completely different. Um, but yeah, it's an amazing place. Well, you wrote, you know, we were catching up in advance of this, just about the, the show. And you wrote in this little questionnaire we had you fill out that very often some some of these donors have changed my outlook on life. We recently hosted Jay Davenport, who leads the fundraising efforts at Virginia Commonwealth University, and he shared the same thing. He spent a portion of his career working in Wall with donors that primarily were Wall Street donors. He spent a portion of his career with in Texas, and it was more oil money, if you will. And then he spent a portion of his career working with Silicon Valley executives, and he just commented how each of those different kind of sub pockets shaped some component of his view of the world. I mean, you shared a similar sentiment. I mean, how have donors shaped your outlook on life? And for uh, emerging advancement professionals listening now who maybe haven't had that experience yet, um, what advice might you give them in, in thinking not just about closing the gift or raising the revenue, but also shaping your worldview? Yeah. Um, you know, I guess, it's um, it's sort of cliche to say that you know um, this is a relationship business, but you know I I think that I was reminded very much in my last year at Sloan when I went back to doing um, just principal gifts a lot more principal gifts work that um, the the opportunity to really build um, deep. Uh, relationships with the constituents that you're working with, wherever you're working and with whoever you're working with, and really understanding who they are um, and asking the questions about what kind of impact they want to have with their philanthropy and who are they and what matters to them, um, and really trying to get underneath all of that um, and being sort of less fixated on checking the box um, and less fixated on the quick close of the gift and more trying to understand uh, what makes them tick and who they are as human beings, um, because it, it will drive a more meaningful gift and it will drive a more meaningful relationship. And it will, um, you know, so for me uh, in this last year, uh, the opportunity to really get to know a handful of donors uh, much more deeply uh, so that I could make a better marriage, if you will, between what matters most to them and what matters most to the institution. Uh, you know, we often talk about um, not wanting um, the donor to drive. So you don't want to accept a gift uh, for something that, in fact, the institution doesn't want. Um, you also... Um, so you, you want to make sure that you're, um, I don't know how to say this the right way. You want to make sure that um, the donor is supporting something that matters to the institution. But you also, in this day and age in particular, as younger and younger donors uh, are getting older and who are um, highly opinionated about what they're going to fund, um, that you're also marrying um, their, what matters to them uh, in this equation. And I think that unless you take the time to really understand them, you can't actually really make that marriage well. Um, you're either, you know, sort of driving home something that matters to the institution and you completely miss the mark, or you're representing the interests of the donor and then the institution is unhappy because they're like, we don't want that gift. That, that's not yeah. something that matters to us. Have you had any examples that you can share of the latter? We hosted uh, Nick Lindy, uh, from the University of Nebraska, who said in one situation, he met with a donor who was willing to make a significant donation to bring back the marching band. And it's like, we, we can't bring back the marching band. And so they were never able to get that translation into a outcome. He tried repositioning and being a conduit to other areas around the arts and so forth. Wasn't going to happen. Do you have examples where you've had to turn down gifts or where you just 
there's been too much misalignment between what the donor wants and what the institution prioritizes at that moment? Yeah, I mean, you know, without, um, you know, uh, revealing um, specificity, I have had actually lots of examples. Um, we actually even had a gift um, in my last job that we returned where we thought we could make the alignment. And then it was like, you know what, this is just not working. Like it just, we cannot get this thing to line up. And so, um, you know, I think institutions make a mistake when they tie themselves in pretzels. Uh, and um, it, it just, it, it's never a good idea, but um, yes. So I have had many, many experiences where donors, um, really, really want to do something that just is not in the institution's best interest. And, uh, you know, I had a donor um, when I was at Simmons, actually, who uh, was truly a philanthropist. Um, and it's amazing to me how few of these people um, exist. And that is the person who says, I trust and believe in the leadership of this institution and I'm giving you this million dollars, this $10 million, you do with it what you believe is best. There are very few people who will say that. We had this amazing donor at Simmons who said that uh, frequently, but most donors don't just give you that sort of blank check. Uh, so you do have to find the way to sort of, you know, make the marriage. Um, and is it because I, they're so opinionated or is it because maybe they don't trust leadership? I think it's to because make the they, decision. I think it's because they don't trust leadership. And I think that's because we don't actually take enough time to really um, dig in and get to know them. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I was listening to one of your other um, podcasts and it was talking about, you know, what are maybe some of the advantages of this new Zoom environment? And um, I at least have noticed this with some of my coaching clients that um, one of the, the upside benefits of Zoom is that where presidents and deans and others have been so, so busy and not really able to get in front of um, you know, donors as much, Zoom has actually given us a new opportunity to actually get um, donors in front of the president or the dean much more frequently um, and an opportunity to sort of build a deeper relationship where you were always dependent on an airplane and getting out there and getting to California to do the face-to-face And the visit. donor schedule and the right. president schedule and the boards right. and the trustees and right. everything, right? Right. Now, you know, if you can do that with Zoom and people are now sort of more open to the idea that Zoom is a medium where that could happen, um, you know, you might be able to build a deeper relationship and build the trust that yeah. it was harder to come by before. So, but yeah, I, do I just, think um, I just caught a podcast uh, with Fred Van Sickle, who's the senior vice president at Cornell university. And he was sharing that he's right now in the midst of closing the biggest gift of his career. And it's been 100% done via this medium. And, you know, as much as he's excited about, he's a people person getting out there, you know, loves the in-person experiences. Yep. It's definitely been eye opening for him. And I think for many um, who started to see like, expectations have changed. Behaviors have changed. This is a right. once in a generation shift. You know, MIT Sloan is no stranger to, you know, technology waves, but I, I think that this, this has just happened so much faster than any other wave we've experienced from the internet to mobile to social. It's just, it's never been crammed into a three month period. Right. Right. So um, anyway, I well, do think it's trust. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Coaching, you know, I, I think coaching has absolutely been exploding in the commercial world. I have not heard as much about coaching in the advancement sector. Uh, it is now common. There are certain venture capitalists that when they fund a company, the first thing that they do, they allocate a portion of the funding to make sure that the management team or the CEO has a coach. Uh, we've seen growth in uh, the therapy space, both uh, traditional therapy, and now there are all kinds of um, uh, mobile and, and digital versions of therapy that have emerged as well. Um, but again, been in the space for a long time. I don't know too many people who've really focused on coaching. I think that professional development in the sector has oftentimes really been about the case conference or the informal 
or maybe even formal mentorship relationships, that's different than coaching. So why did you feel like there was a void? What were the the themes that you kind of observed throughout your career that made you feel like, you know what, this could be a great way to continue um, to stay engaged with the advancement and broader nonprofit fundraising community and really fill a void. Yeah. So um, I think one of the things that I enjoyed most about the work, in addition to the relationships with donors and the fundraising, was the mentoring and growing of staff. Um, and I've been a manager since I was 26 years old. Uh, I'm going to be 60 in a little bit, uh, just down the road. And uh, I wanted an uh, opportunity to sort of stay engaged in the advancement profession. And when I looked around, you know, so when I would hire coaches uh, in uh, my last job, you know, there is a, a battery of coaches sort of at the executive level um, that are hired really more to do sort of management executive coaching. But there are not, as you said, a lot of people doing coaching uh, specifically in the advancement, um, focused on the advancement uh, arena. And so the coaching that I'm currently doing is really um, exclusively with advancement professionals uh, not just in higher ed, but um, in, a in the nonprofit sector. Uh, and it's practical coaching. So it's, it is management coaching, um, but it is, um, you know, uh, people who are having issues, brand new managers who are, you know, challenged around that. People who've taken on uh, increased responsibility, people who are having challenges managing up, across, or down. Um, people who've come from outside the sector. So they've been in the for-profit sector and they've taken on an alumni relations director role and they're transitioning into the nonprofit sector in higher ed and they're trying to figure out, you know, what is higher ed all about? Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm loving the work, I have to say, really loving the work. And I, I guess I feel like um, it is helpful, at least I'm finding um, that I'm adding value to have an outside voice, an outside perspective. Um, you know, often I think that um, the vice president doesn't necessarily have the time for the level of individual attention that some new managers need. Um, and so I fill that gap of being able to provide that additional attention. Um, when I've talked to some of the um, folks uh, who are running the HR functions in the larger advancement shops, what they'll say is that um, someone, they would rather spend the money on a, a coach rather than um, uh, who, who would provide sort of, you know, Two, two touch points a month over a six month period of time, then send them to one conference um, because this is sort of individualized attention over a six month period of time. So um, anyway, that's why I got into it. I feel like there's a value that I can add and I've been doing the work for you know 38 years. So, so if there's a, uh, let's say new manager or kind of that, that person you described, maybe uh, they're shifting into a new role, maybe it's a new kind of institution where they are feeling maybe a little bit overwhelmed or they wish that they had more of a sounding board. Um, how would you encourage that individual to make the case to their boss, to their senior vice president or their HR group to invest in coaching, right? Um, uh, what, what would you advise them to do? Obviously we're at a time when budgets are tight, but at the same time travel budgets are way down, right? We're not going to traditional professional development as much uh, on the conference circuit right now. Could be a perfect time to have somebody uh, advocate for investment in coaching uh, along the lines of the services that you provide. What advice would you give to make that happen? Yeah, so I guess what I would ask is, I would ask them to ask, you know, is there, are there professional development resources that have been set aside? Um, given that I was recently promoted or given, you know, whatever the circumstances might be, um, I would tell them to articulate to their boss, you know, I'm having some challenges in these following areas. And I think an external coach would be helpful to me. Would you be open to the idea of having some, you know, hiring someone to work with me for three months, six months, you know, usually these contracts aren't for years. They're for three months or six months. Um, sometimes they're nine months. I mean, it's not like a, you know, a lifelong sentence. <laughs> um, so. 
And I imagine in, in many regards, when you frame it the way you just did, the senior vice president might almost be relieved where it's like, wow, first of all, you're showing that you are ambitious and committed to excelling. Uh, and also by having gone out and not only found a coach, but made a proposal, it's like one last thing that I have to worry about. I mean, I don't know, I, I don't know how to say that, but just, I, I could imagine it being a relief even for some of the senior leaders to know that there is some additional support. I mean, look, we're comfortable hiring um, fundraising develop, you know, development trainers, right? I mean, when it's right. like around the art of, or the science of raising the money, we have no problem making that investment. But when it's a little bit less tactical and somewhat more nuanced, maybe it isn't as comfortable or um, just as well understood in the sector. Right, right, right. I mean, I, you know, I think it depends on what kind of professional development budgets the shops have, you know, if they're smaller shops and they really don't have a huge professional development budget, that's one thing. But for some of the larger shops that have pretty decent sized professional development budgets and they're sending people off to conferences every year, you know, those shops usually have the resources to invest in this kind of thing. Uh, and I also would say that if supervisors want to see their um, new managers be successful, you know, investing in them is, you know, you either, you either invest in them and support them in being successful, or you don't invest in them. And then you're looking at, you know, they're leaving and they're not successful and, you know, they implode because they're not good managers. Yeah. And then you just got to hire somebody else. So a lot know. more, a lot more expensive than coaching. Yeah. Right. Um, right. So tell me a little bit about the arc of the relationship. Let's say it's a six month or a year long um, yep. standard kind of engagement, new yep. manager. Um, what is the kind of first third, second third, third third of that relationship look like? Yep, yep. So, um, I mean, each, I mean, what I will say is that because I am a work for myself and independent, I, every single one of the relationships I've had to date are all custom uh, developed based on the needs of the client. So not, there's like sort of no, I'm not like pulling something out and saying, oh, you know, I mean, it, none of it looks like that. But Here, here's the template. Here's the template. Much. There is yeah. no template. Um, but uh, I can just give you a few examples um, based on some of the clients I'm currently working with. Um, in the case of one individual who um, was deemed by a vice president as um, uh, having some challenges uh, as a new manager, um, I went in and did sort of a 360, um, not a paper version, but uh, talked to a variety of people who both work for, work with, and uh, had a few external volunteers and um, then provided some feedback, uh, some themes. And um, we then met um, every two weeks uh, for um, three months and then did an assessment about, you know, after three months, should it remain two weeks or are we gonna go down to a month? Um, we uh, crafted, the boss and I crafted an agenda of the issues that the boss saw as critical. Um, and then the employee and I crafted an agenda as well. Um, I do a report into the boss on a um, every other month basis uh, and, um, and there are homework assignments, if you will, you know, sort of, you know, okay, as a result of our call today, here are some things you're going to work on and here are my expectations. And, you know, before we meet next time, this is what I'm expecting you to, you know, think about or work on or whatever. Um, so, um, and then I make myself available between calls. So I'm in the middle of a, you know, a bit of a uh, fire with one of my clients right now. And, you know, I was on the phone with her last night. I was on the phone with her this morning, you know, so, um, you know, I'm on the one hand, it's like every other week, but you know, when there's something going on, I make myself available. So, you know, I mean, it really nothing, there's no sort of, I don't know, I don't, I, I, I there's no standard sort of, this is what it looks like. It's, mm -hmm. it really is, which is why, you know, in the end, I, I'm going to take on only as many clients as I can serve the way I feel like it's the right way to serve a client. Yeah. Well, I think um, we've often had guests talk about over their career, how much the sector has professionalized, right? We hear about the professionalization of advancement all the time. Um, and it's only natural that in that professionalization, there should be a much more robust network of coaches like yourself who, um, again, it's not just 
I'm going to teach you how to make an ask. It's much more, I'm going to teach you how to build a career. I'm going to help you navigate the people issues that ultimately tend to be a lot more challenging than the tactical, you know, how do you make the ask or how do you, you know, do the proposal? Um, so I, I think it's super interesting and I'm, I'm hopeful that our audience finds it valuable. Um, one last theme that I want to uh, get your perspective on before we wrap up is I saw that you were a member of Women in Development of Greater Boston for over uh, 20 years. Uh, you've referenced, you know, being a young woman in a leadership role early in your career. Um, just tell me a little bit about your perspective on, um, you, you've also talked about, about women as donors, right? Largely through the um, uh, collaboration at uh, Simmons. But just what's your perspective having, um, you know, joined the, uh, the sector when you did, uh, having seen the shift in philanthropic power, if you will, but then also the professionalization and just emerging as a, a female leader in what has been historically maybe more, um, you know, male dominated, at least in the leadership ranks. Yeah, and the leadership ranks, it, uh, I, it still is actually many of the vice president roles um, are still held by men, although most of the development shops are women now. It's, right. I mean, very hard to find male candidates actually for jobs. I think when I left Sloan, there were maybe seven men out of a staff of 55 or something like that. Um, so, uh, and, um, you know, my experience at, at Simmons was a good one because, uh, gave me an opportunity to really work with a lot of female donors, which I had not really had that opportunity. Um, and the, and the balance of male and female donors at Sloan is actually more balanced than, um, one might think, but, uh, so, you know, um, I mean, I have had, uh, quite a run and I have never felt at any point like my gender has, uh, been an inhibitor to my success. Um, and uh, I wish that there were more men in the field, uh, just like I wish there were more people of color in the field. Um, and I wish we could attract uh, both more men and more women, more people of color to the field. Um, and I wish that, um, more women, although I think more and more and more, I mean, this huge gift by, um, Jeff Bezos, his ex-wife is Mackenzie uh, Scott. Mackenzie yeah. Scott is awesome. Uh, you know, more and more women are, you know, becoming some of the largest philanthropists in the country, which is great. So, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I have anything, um, more profound or meaningful to say than that. You know, I just have never, ever, ever felt that it was in my way, me personally. Um, you know, I do find that the workplace itself is not as balanced as I wish it was, you know? And I think that that as a result, there is a resulting um, challenge in the workplace because there's not more gender balance that, you know, would be nice if there was, but Outside of that, you know, um, you know, I don't, I don't know that I have anything particularly profound to say about it. Well, closing thought then, when you think forward, uh, you've experienced a lot. You've lived through different cycles, worked through different cycles. We're now obviously in the midst of uh, incredible change. But what's the next step for the sector when you think about the advancement space? What, what does the future hold? The next three to five years that if you were, uh, you know, in that senior uh, leadership role inside a shop, you'd really be focused on knowing what you know now? You know, I mean, I think that, interestingly, I think that the, this pandemic has actually given us um, the exact opposite of what people think, which is that I think people think that um, this um, inability to travel and be in front of people has created um, a distancing or um, uh, um, 
that we're not going to be in front of each other and therefore it's going to be depersonalized or something. But I actually think that it has created an opportunity for us to be um, even more personal. Um, I think that it has reshaped how we're going to prioritize the work um, because uh, we have we will be forced and have been forced to determine sort of what really matters. So I think, you know, in the midst of a crisis, you sort of say, oh my gosh, sort of all this stuff we used to do, you know, now all of a sudden, like, so now all of a sudden, like you didn't have reunion last year. Okay, well, so what does reunion have to look like? Like now we have permission to actually not do reunion the way we've always done reunion. Like now we have, it's like we've been given permission in a million different ways to rethink the work. So I feel like we now have permission in so many ways, like all these events that have just always been done the way they've been done. Now we have permission to not do them anymore. Um, all these institutions have been, have built up capacity to do, virtual activities in a way that they never had capacity to do virtual activities. And they've learned both how to do them right and wrong. You know, they've learned that sort of really large virtual events don't work. People sign up, but don't show up because at the end of the day, they're sick of being on Zoom all day. So they'll RSVP, but then not show. But they've learned that the smaller Zoom things actually do work because they're going to be seen. And, you know, so like everybody's learning through these lessons. And I think, so I think that there's a, an, a way and an ability to be sort of more personalized because of the, the thing we talked about earlier, right? So the president can actually have these Zoom connections with people and actually feel, people can feel more connected even though they're far away and it doesn't have to be the plane ride. So I think there's this profound opportunity actually to rethink the entire business if, if people take the time to do it and don't just say after the vaccine, oh, let's just slide right back in. Let's just like buckle right back into everything we used to do. But instead they say, oh, what were the lessons over the last 12 months? And let's like jettison all this crap and not do it anymore. And let's take these cool lessons we got and let's build on them. So- I love it. You are spot on. I mean, obviously we're aligned in our view on that. Inertia is powerful and it, it stopped and now we get to restart. And I hope that it's on a different course, uh, taking the best of what we had before, the best of what we have now to scale relationship building much more deeply. Think about the amount of time for one trip by the president to California from MIT. How much, how many hours, right? How many dollars? And if you can repackage that into 30 minute Zoom conversations over that same three day period, how many more people can actually get exposure to the direct vision, the direct voice, the direct expressions? And I, I'm with you, I think it can be better. I don't think it's a trade-off. I think it's actually gonna be much, much better if we embrace the moment. Here's the question though. The question is, will the leaders, the presidents and the deans set aside the time like when they got on a plane, they were forced, right? It was like, oh, I'm getting on a plane. Now that development shop owns me for three days. They're going to fill my calendar for three days. Will they give that three days over in the same way when they're sitting in their offices in New York in wherever they are? You know, I mean, that's, that's um, I mean, so there's, there's like a, um, it's not just a learning on the part of the development shops. It's a learning on the part of the leadership of these various organizations that they also have to think differently. And I think they're going to have to, you know, I, I, I read, uh, I read a, a book recently. One of the takeaways was uh, your, your calendar reflects your values. They actually said your calendar and your checking account reflect your values. You know, it's one thing to say what you care about, what you believe, what you want to do. It's another thing to look at your calendar. What do you actually do? You know, right. look at your checking account. What do you actually buy? And I think that leaders uh, obviously have all been forced, right? Just like they were forced to take the three days to California, they've now been forced into the Zoom economy. When we're not forced uh, to do that, let's say next year, where will it settle out? Um, 
But I think that's where it's going to be really important for development leaders to say, look, here's how we need you now, right? We used to need you and that faculty member to go to Chicago, to the university club, to have XYZ event with those top 100 supporters. Now I need you to send them 15 second iPhone videos, letting them know that you care. And that's different, but it's the same spirit. It's just so much more scalable now. I hope that's where we land. Right. Me too. It'll be very interesting to see. Chris, if people want to stay in touch with you, if they want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, email um, would be great. So, Do you have a preferred address that you'd uh, be comfortable sharing? I do. How would you like me to do that? Yeah, just share it right now and we okay. um, just, yeah, and we'll, we'll uh, link to it as well. Okay, it's Schaefer. So S-C-H-A-E-F-E-R-K-G at gmail.com. Great. And you uh, are on LinkedIn. Uh, if you uh, search for Chris Schaefer or daughter of president, uh, those will be two ways that you can probably <laughs> track down Chris. <laughs> Thanks so much, Brent. Chris, it has been a privilege to get to know you over the years. Thank you for sharing your perspective you. and your journey with our audience. Brent Thank signing so off much. from Oceanside with today's episode of the Rays podcast. Thanks everyone. Mm-hmm.